This episode is brought to you by Estellas Oncology. Estellas Oncology is changing the course of cancer treatment. With a world-class team of medical, clinical, and scientific experts, Estellas Oncology is driving innovation and collaboration to redefine what's possible for those impacted by hard-to-treat cancers. Learn more at estellasoncology.com. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Benign prostatic hyperplasia, or BPH, is quite common in middle age and older men, and it's estimated that up to 70% of men over age 60 have symptoms from BPH. Well, it's not really a life-threatening condition, it does produce symptoms which can negatively affect the lifestyle of our patients. Since most patients are managed by primary care providers, we should be comfortable with the variety of treatment options available, when treatment should be initiated, and what's available pharmacologically, and when should a urologist be consulted to consider a surgical option. We'll discuss these questions and more with Dr. Mitch Humphreys from the Department of Urology at the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Mitch, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to uh, join you and uh, talk through uh, important topics. Yeah, this is something I see often because my practice is mostly middle-aged and older men. So uh, I see a lot of patients with BPH and I want to start by asking you to kind of characterize BPH and what questions we should ask as a primary care provider. So I think that's a great starting point because when we talk about BPH, really it's the etiology of a constellation of symptoms that we consider low urinary tract symptoms, or or we abbreviate it and call it LUTs. But BPH is the most common source of LUTs in men. And when we think about BPH, I typically think of it in two ways because it helps to focus my mind on what we treat. So there's a static component of the BPH or think about it as the direct bladder outlet and the obstructive component to the bladder and how the bladder functions. There's also a dynamic component of BPH because there's smooth muscle and tonicity within the prostate itself that increases resistance. It may have nothing to do with the size of the prostate. And when you think about these two ways of thinking about BPH, it helps to trigger what you think about treatment and how you treat it. And when you think about BPH, I would also encourage someone to think about the entire urinary tract. Don't focus so much on the prostate, but think about the whole pathway from the sensory afferent nerves to the bladder function itself. And the reason this is important is because I think there's been a paradigm shift in how we think about BPH. It used to be that we just focused on alleviating the symptoms, the bothersome symptoms from low urinary tract symptoms from prostate enlargement. We've now shifted the paradigm to think about altering the disease progression of BPH and preventing the long-term complications associated with BPH. There are other things that can lead to these low urinary tract symptoms that we have to consider, whether it's bladder overactivity, underactivity, bladder stones, bladder tumors, strictures, prostatitis, urinary tract infections, foreign bodies, BPH is the most common, so we have to do some things to help us understand where we should start in that exam. That often starts with the questions that we ask. So when I'm seeing a man comes into me with low urinary tract symptoms, 
I often just try to get a gestalt of where they're at in terms of their symptoms and how much of a bother it is for them. So I often ask things like, how is your urination? Do you have a strong stream, a weak stream? Is it intermittent? Do you have a delay in starting? Do you have a prolonged stream? Do you feel like you completely empty your bladder? Do you double void? Do you void more times in an hour? How many times do you get up at night? Is there any blood in the urine? Burning when you urinate, urinate leakage? If so, when does that happen? Have you done anything to help you with your prostate? Taken any medications over the counter? Prescriptions? Have you ever had surgeries or intervention? Do you have a significant family history? These are some of the things that I talk to men about to get a real understanding of how they're doing in terms of their avoiding. A lot of times I like to start with the International Prostate Symptom Score because that helps to quantify really what their symptoms are and helps us understand what's going on with those men. And I will say the number one bother or quality of life of men with BPH and lower urinary tract symptoms is actually the same in both men and women. And it all circles around nocturia. About 48% of men with BPH and lower urinary tract symptoms mostly complain of their nighttime urination. I'd agree with that. And we're going to get to treatment later, but I would say that the majority of men, when they decide they want treatment, it's because they're getting up four or five times per night. Well, what, what role does a physical exam play in evaluating a patient with BPH? Uh, I'm often amazed that patients with a lot of symptoms sometimes don't seem to have all that much enlargement of the prostate and others where the prostate is huge may have minimal symptoms. So talk about the physical exam. I think it's really important to do a physical exam. It may not classify the BPH into itself, but it does give you an estimation of prostate size. It also allows you to screen for nodules, asymmetry. It gives you an idea of rectal tone and some of whether or not they're neurologically intact. But the size of the prostate itself doesn't necessarily correlate with their bladder outlet obstruction or BPH. Again, it gives you an overall idea of their prostate size, but really what we know is the morphology of the prostate drives the degree of obstruction that they have. So what I mean by that is a man can have a small prostate, but a very high riding bladder neck that serves as an obstruction, or they could have part of their prostate that grows into the bladder, what we call the median lobe. And that median lobe then serves as a ball valve to obstruct the bladder neck as that bladder starts to contract. What's interesting is those men that do have a median lobe tend to fail medical therapy earlier. So it should raise your suspicion. And also those men with a median lobe may not be good candidates for certain procedures or treatments for their prostate, such as some of the newer things like prostatic arterial embolization that embolizes the blood supply to the prostate to shrink it. Well, if they have part of the prostate growing into the bladder, that blood supply is derived from the bladder itself. So those treatments may not be as effective in those men. So we really have to think about the individual man and individualize the treatments based on both their symptoms and their prostate morphology. You kind of referred to this a little while ago about the uh, urethral obstruction. It's not purely due to the size of the prostate. Uh, mm -hmm. The uh, periurethral muscles also play a role. And that's why some of our treatments like the alpha blockers work, they really wouldn't have any effect on a uh, enlarged prostate, correct? Correct. So they can because enlarged prostates may have that going back to that very first thing we talked about, both that dynamic and static component. So the static component is the physicality of the blocking it. The dynamic is using that smooth muscle tone. 
And I think this is a common thing for people to understand and patients to understand is they say, well, any procedure I do is gonna interrupt one of my sphincters. And so any surgery is gonna disrupt my sphincter. It's an oversimplification. So the prostate has what we call the membranous urethra, the external urinary sphincter, and that's the sphincter that sits in front of the prostate. So if you're going to the bathroom and somebody walks in on you, you can slam that shut and stop going to the bathroom. The other sphincter that people always refer to as the internal sphincter is actually circular fibers of the bladder neck and it surrounds the prostate. And so what that does is it helps you to close the bladder neck. So say during sexual function or ejaculation, those circular fibers contract, they contract around the prostate to block off the bladder neck to allow ejaculation to come out through the tip of the penis instead of going backwards into the bladder. That's why some of the medications like alpha blockers, when they relax that tone at the bladder neck, men may experience retrograde ejaculation. That's why they get that particular symptom from those medications. Let's talk more about evaluating the patient. So I would say history is of primary importance here. Physical exam, some importance, but how about testing? Are there any tests that we should be doing? There are tests and I talked about it before, but I think a great place to start is with the International Prostate Symptom Score Questionnaire, the IPSS. The nice thing about that is it provides objective data to subjective symptoms from the patient and it serves as a baseline for our understanding. It basically scored out of 35 points. There's always a bother score, so you can really put into context how much these symptoms truly bother patients. But a score of zero to seven indicates mild symptoms, a score of eight to 19, moderate symptoms, and 20 to 35, severe symptoms. And so when you think about how you're gonna intervene or treat, basing on those symptoms is important. When we look at natural history studies, those men with mild BPH symptoms, at one year, 85% are stable but at five years, 65% are stable. So a majority of those patients do progress. The risk factors for that progression are those men with larger prostates, higher PSA, older men, and those already with a reduced flow rate. When I think about testing for BPH, I always like to get a baseline PSA, not just for cancer screening, but also as a surrogate for the prostate size. The larger the prostate is, the more PSA it's gonna produce. So it helps me again, put the physical exam in context. The other thing that I like to do as a minimal test is get a urinalysis just to make sure we're not missing something else and a uroflow study with post-void residual. It tells me, are they emptying their bladder and what their flow rate is like. Most men pee between eight and 12 cc's per second. If their flow rate is lower than that, it tells me that there may be some opportunity to improve their symptoms. The rest of the testing I only do in the case where that man seeks intervention or has failed medical or some other therapy. I think the guidelines would all agree that part of that uh, evaluation includes a cystoscopy to evaluate the morphology of the prostate, as well as a prostate ultrasound to really get precise dimensions and size of that prostate, because some of our treatments are guided by the size of the prostate. If that patient has any neurologic findings, high post-void residuals, incontinence, inability to urinate, multiple sclerosis, something else that I'm worried about, in those cases, I'd get a full urodynamics to better understand how the bladder fills, holds, and squeezes, because the problem may not just be in the prostate, but we need to evaluate the detrusor or the bladder as well. Okay. So we've identified a patient with BPH. How do we decide when to recommend treatment for them? 
So from my standpoint, there's five drivers that would require this treatment to be mandatory more so than elective because it can affect their health. Other than that, it's all about quality of life or what that patient wants based on their desires. But the five things that I think about that would make me tell a patient, look, we need to do something because you're heading in the wrong direction are those with renal impairment due to blood outlet obstruction, worsening kidney function, those with an inability to urinate, those that are unable to tolerate the medications for BPH due to side effects, those that are getting bladder stones, recurrent urinary tract infections, or urinary tract infections, those that are getting bladder stones or recurrent infections, and those that have recalcitrant bleeding from the prostate that's been resistant to other management. Those five conditions would tell me we need to do something more about your prostate to advance treatment. Other than that, it's all about quality of life. And like I said, intervening in the disease to prevent the long-term complications from BPH. Well, I can't think of a condition where the shared decision-making is more important than deciding to treat with a patient who has BPH. You really need to take the patient's own uh, thoughts in, in mind in terms of recommending treatment or not. So let's start with the medications. What's available pharmacologically? So when I think about pharmacologic intervention for prostate, there's three main classes of the medication. The most common first-line therapy is alpha adrenergic blockers or alpha blockers. It's because of certain adrenoreceptors that are prominent in the lower urinary tract. Alpha-1As are prominent in the prostate and lower urinary tract. Alpha-1Bs are in vascular tissue. Alpha-1Ds are in nasal tissue, and some of the predominance of these receptors lead to the side effects of these medications. Alpha blockers are generally a first-line treatment because they're effective for small glands, prostates less than 40, and they reduce the IPSS by 35 to 40%, increase the maximum flow rate by 20 to 25%. The only downside is data has shown us that they don't prevent the risk of urinary retention in long-term studies. The side effects from these medications may be dizziness, orthostatic hypotension, fatigue, nasal congestion, and retrograde ejaculation. If a man is really concerned about retrograde ejaculation in terms of alpha blockers, the one with the least rate of retrograde ejaculation is alpha-zosin. So that may be a particular drug that I use. Other alpha blockers include tamulosin, doxazosin, and terazosin. And now a newer class of medication, which we call uroselective, alpha-1A blockers are about 40 times more selective for the alpha-1A subtype than the other ones that I just mentioned. The most common one of that is psilidocin, and it's shown to be a very good alternative for those older patients where blood pressure may be an issue, where we don't want to get that orthostatic hypotension because they're so uroselective for the urinary tract. The downside is, is they also have the highest rate of retrograde ejaculation of about 30% in patients. The other thing that I like about the psilidocin is data has shown us that in those men with nocturia and that are older than 65, this reduces nocturia episodes in about 53 to 54% of patients. So it's a very good class of medications to think about when that nocturia is a major component of what they're trying to do. The second class of medication to consider is 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. And the way that these work is if you think about it, the prostate uses 5-alpha reductase to convert testosterone to dihydroepitestosterone, usually through type 2 in the prostate. But DHT is about 10 times more potent than testosterone on prostate stroma. 
it also disassociates from the androgen receptor much slower than testosterone. So this becomes a very good target. When we do target this on the prostate, it reduces the prostate size itself by about 18 to 30%. You also have to remember that it will reduce circulating PSA by about 50% after six to 12 months of use. So when you have a patient on a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor and they come in for a PSA check, just think in your mind, I need to double that PSA to still think about the relevance in terms of screening and those things. Mm -hmm. 5-alpha reductase inhibitors work better on larger prostates, but they do have a slower onset of action. It may take longer than what you see in terms of results for the patient. So you just have to let them know that it may have that slower onset of action. The most common side effects with the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor may be reduced libido, erectile dysfunction, and gynecomastia occurs in about 1% to 2% of patients. I think that's also a role for the IPSS since these medications work so slowly that um, men aren't often aware that their symptoms are changing. So using that IPSS score, you can assess that over time and see that the medication is actually helping. It's a great point because most men say, well, I'm just getting older, so my slower urinary stream, this is just part of normal aging where actually it's reflecting a pathologic process. And so we, we have to be teaching men and being aware that a slower stream as you get older isn't necessarily part of aging, but it's reflecting actually a histologic process occurring in the prostate and the lower urinary tract symptoms. Well, the alpha blockers and reductase inhibitors are aimed at reducing the obstructive symptoms, but what about the irritative symptoms? Do they have any effect on things like urgency? A lot of times when you see the urgency and the symptoms that come with VPH and bottle obstruction, what the bladder is doing is it's telling you, hey, I'm having a hard time getting the urine out. A lot of times if you fix the obstruction and you reduce the resistance, a lot of times those irritative symptoms may resolve, but not always. And that's where we can use other medications at our disposal to help with some of those. The other point that I'd make about the alpha blockers and 5-alpha reductase inhibitors is the big trials have shown us that when you use those two medications in combination, they work better in alleviating those symptoms for patients more than just using either single agent by itself. And using a combination of those therapies in the largest double-blinded placebo-controlled trial known called the MTOPS trial, showed there was a reduction both in BPH progression and a reduced need of surgery five years after initiating that. One last class of medication I, I would be hesitant to not include uh, that I think is important and has a role in BPH is the phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors. When we think about the PD-5 inhibitors, we typically think about erectile dysfunction. However, Tadalafil has shown to improve the IPSS in 17 to 35% of patients. And I use this in those men to your earlier point that have urgency because by moderating the nitric oxide pathway in the neurotransmitter in the urinary tract, you can affect urinary urgency through the afferent nerves of the bladder. And so for those men with maybe BPH and a little bit of erectile dysfunction, those men with urgency, I may go to a phosphodiesterase inhibitor as a first-line agent. The classic medications used for uh, at least overactive bladder are the anticholinergic drugs, such as mm -hmm. oxybutynin, tolteridine. Do, do you get nervous using those in men with a significant amount of obstruction? Actually, we don't. And there's actually been pretty good randomized clinical trial evidence that shows 
when you're treating both the obstructive component and the irritative symptoms, it's fine to use these medicines in conjunction. And the risk of urinary retention was similar when you used an anticholinergic medicine to placebo. The only caution that I would throw out there is if those men have a post-void residual of 250 to 300 cc's, I would use those medications with a little bit of caution or I'd monitor them more closely. Mm -hmm. So let's say the patient either progresses on pharmacologic therapy or the medication isn't all that helpful. Where do we go next? Yeah. And so that's where I think that we think that if they've had that medication failure, that's where we start to talk about the various different treatments. And when we look at the treatments, there is a whole spectrum of treatments that escalates from minimally invasive therapies to office-based therapies to definitive surgeries. And a lot of it depends on the patient and the individual needs. And what we've learned over time is that there's no one size fits all for BPH. You really have to individualize the treatment based on what the patient wants. Sometimes I have younger patients and really the thought of retrograde ejaculation, they don't want any therapy that's gonna risk retrograde ejaculation. Other men come in and say, I just wanna pee like I'm 17 again. I don't care about what the consequences are. I have other men that come in and say, look, I don't care what happens five years from now. Give me a treatment that helps a little bit so I don't have to take these medications for the next five years. Other men say, I want to take care of my prostate right now, and I don't want to think about it again. And so we have to tailor the treatment and the surgeries and the procedures that we offer based on what the patient's looking for to best suit their needs, as well as their kind of disease and the morphology of the prostate. What procedures are available? Where do you start? So again, there's a lot of treatments out there. I think right now, a lot of things in vogue are coming with the minimally invasive surgical therapies where we're starting to take therapies out of the operating room and bringing them more to the office. I think of these therapies, which we call MIST, as alternative to medical therapy. So they're not gonna pee much better than if they were on medical therapy, but it's an alternative of taking those medications. And those are things like resume or steam therapy in the prostate to cause scarring in the prostate to open it up. There's implantable devices to push the prostate out of the way, things called like ural lift. Um, there's interstitial laser ablation where you put a laser fiber into the prostate, turn it on to cause that scarring. We've mentioned earlier prostatic arterial embolization, which is typically done by interventional radiology to cut off the blood supply to the prostate and shrink it. And now there's temporary nitinol devices made out of a material that reshape and remodel the prostate where you leave it in for seven days and take it out. So there's a host of minimally invasive therapies. However, I would say the gold standard when we think about BPH is now kind of undergone an evolution. And now when we think about the gold standard, it's really about endoscopic enucleation. So we've had open, simple adenectomies where we go in and we remove the tissue from the prostate. Now we do the same thing through endoscopic or minimally invasive operations in the OR. A lot of that used to be focused on the energy source, which laser you used, whether it was bipolar energy, monopolar energy, homium laser, thumium laser, thumium fiber laser, diode laser. And so there was a lot of discussion around there. But right now, I'd say the most robust and longest data all circulates around homium laser enucleation in the prostate. The reason that's a benefit to patient is you can treat prostates of any size, so it's size agnostic, and you can even do it on anticoagulated patients. And they have 
an incredible outcome without all the morbidity and risk of open, simple prostatectomy. There's also been a recent reports in the data that have moved away from open prostatectomy to those that can't do endoscopic enucleation to robot-assisted simple prostatectomy. But to me, putting a scope into the penis and taking care of the whole operation with no need for any incisions beats any operation where you have to put multiple ports in the belly, you have to violate the bladder, you have to leave the catheter for a little bit longer. So there has been quite an evolution of uh, treatments, but I would say the majority of things now and the gold standard has now moved to endoscopic enucleation for the prostate. Okay. What about the TURP? Is that still done? The TURP is absolutely still done. It's still a cornerstone of treatment and there's nothing wrong with a good TURP. TURPs do have a slightly higher retreatment rate than enucleation. Enucleation, the retreatment rate is less than 1%. TURP, the retreatment rate may be around 25 to 30% in seven years. I will say that monopolar TURPs have kind of gone to the wayside, whereas most TURPs now are done with bipolar technology. And the reason for that is with bipolar technology, you can use saline as the irrigant, which reduces the risk of TUR syndrome and hyponatremia. And I think for prostate smaller than 60 gram, a TURP is still a very good option for treating BPH in a skilled practitioner's hands. Okay. Well, Mitch, you've given us a lot of information on the evaluation and management of BPH. Can you summarize our discussion, maybe give two or three key points? Yeah. So when I think about BPH, I think it's important to consider it as one of many possible causes of lower urinary tract symptoms and understand the impact of voiding. Think about early recognition and intervention to prevent the progression of BPH and the long-term consequences. I also think that medical therapy is a very good place to start, but medical therapy has now evolved. And so we can now use it to treat specific symptoms with those patients and recognize that if medical therapy fails early, you should be thinking about morphology or something else going on, whether that prostate grows into the bladder with a medium lobe. And lastly, there's lots of options for the treatment of BPH. If you can think of it, people have done it to the prostate. So consider what's most important to that patient and their voiding, and don't be afraid to engage with your local urologist early and often. And uh, again, I want to thank you, the audience, for your interest. I want to thank you for your time and uh, appreciate uh, the conversation. We've been discussing benign prostatic hyperplasia with urologist Dr. Mitch Humphreys from the Mayo Clinic in Phoenix, Arizona. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.